I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of Cybersecurity Interviews. This is the fourth in a five-part series that I'm doing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today, we're speaking to Jennifer Brown. Jennifer is an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, diversity and inclusion consultant, and author. As a successful founder, president, and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, headquartered in New York City, Jennifer is responsible for designing workplace strategies that have been implemented by some of the biggest companies and nonprofits in the world. She has harnessed more than 14 years of experience as a world-renowned diversity and inclusion expert through consulting work, keynoting, and thought leadership. Jennifer has spoken at many top conferences and events, such as the International Diversity Forum, the Global DNI Summit, Forum for Workplace Inclusion, the NGLCC International Business and Leadership Conference, the Out and Equal Workplace Summit, Emerging Women, as well as organizations such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the NBA, Google, IBM, and more. She's a best-selling author of Inclusion, Diversity in the New Workplace, and The Will to Change, and the new book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, Your Role in Creating Cultures Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive. Jennifer is also the host of the popular weekly podcast, The Will to Change, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. In this episode, we discuss being an ally to underrepresented groups biases in the workplace, how the COVID crisis has shed light on diversity, how leadership needs to change the culture, removing harmful processes, finding diverse mentors, the risk to business by not embracing diversity, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Jennifer, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm good. I'm excited about our conversation. Me too. Um, you know, as I, I've been tell, I kind of told you before we hit we hit record that I've been doing technology and cybersecurity for far too many years. And I've decided that the issues that I've been dealing with on the tech side just keep coming up. So I'm going to ignore all those. Those I can't fix the technology. But, you know, looking at it from a leadership perspective and being in positions of management leadership, I've noticed that people that look like me, so, you know, cis, white, males, able-bodied from a financial background such as I had, just, you know, pretty middle class, upper middle class, um, I've had a lot of privilege and, and luck, I should say, and in, 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 mm-hmm. you know, getting to where I am. And if I'm going to raise the next generation of leaders and cybersecurity professionals, I need to address the fact that people like me have to talk about diversity and inclusion and, and why I asked you on the show. So, you know, that was my kind of impetus to saying, wow, you know, a lot of the people I talk to have had hurdles that I haven't had. So what kind of drove you into leading into diversity and inclusion? Yeah, that's it. I mean, thank you, Doug. And thank you for the ownership you're taking of the work. Um, I hear that loud and clear in you. And 
it is, I'm sure you're asking yourself, if not me, whom, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I almost and, and felt that's... <laughs> quite frankly, like it shouldn't be me because, Oh, I, I ugh, gosh, yeah. you know, I'm the problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. And when I talk to more people like, no, you're the problem, but you need to talk about it. <laughs> right. Right. It's like counter, I guess it's counterintuitive. I mean, I think it's very logical what you're doing to say, wait a second, if it's, if I'm a part of the problem and people that look like me are, then maybe I have part of the solution because I can speak to people that look like me and be heard differently. And that's, you know, that's the source of your power among other sources is, is that, a the messenger mattering as much as the message in this work. Um, and I can kind of relate because I'm a cisgender white gay woman, uh, don't have a disability at this current time. Um, and from a, a socioeconomically very privileged background, all, you know, also, so there's some things around that my own explorations of where do I use my voice? Am I, is it useful? Is it helpful? How do I not intrude? Um, how do I like provide the right kind of allyship or what we say is accomplicing behavior? Um, and it's funny because I'm also an LGBTQ plus woman. So there are, there are pieces of my identity that introduce, you know, stigma or might trigger microaggressions and people and bias. And, and so I always think of these, like, I'm, you know, the Rubik's cube of our identity, which is that if you turn it one way, you see privilege. If you turn another way, you have some, you know, some understanding of marginalization and exclusion um, in all of its different varieties. So, so much of our diverse dimensions are invisible. Um, and you said you're really passionate about mental health, but mental health is, is propping up on all of my talks as, as worse this year than ever, of course, for obvious reasons and deeply stigmatized. Um, so I'm hoping this year brings this issue just as one identity up to the surface so we can educate ourselves about it. We can, we can address how pervasive it is and all the different forms that it takes. And then we can think about how do we, how do we remove this stigma that keeps this closeted and then in doing so, you know, dig it up, look at it, acknowledge its presence you know, and how it informs like absenteeism or retention, you know, or like loyalty for employees, you know, and through thick and thin, you know, it's what companies don't do very well. Um, and I think this year has really told us how bad we are at all of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, it's kind of like, you know, don't, don't waste a, a crisis. Right. I kind of look at it as a way, right. of, you know, more of these issues have come up and been quite frankly amplified. It's, it's kind of been a black light yes. on a lot of these issues where we oh, realize, word. you know, we, um, you know, obviously the mental health stuff's there and people are feeling, and I've had more people just say to me, Hey, I'm just frustrated. I'm like, look, it's, it's okay not to feel okay. I mean, there's days I don't and mm. I'm burnt out or, mm. you know, I find myself working more or, or too connected to work or whatever it is. So you have to be able to do that. But, but also seeing that, you know, when, when you are dealing with people more on purely, you know, maybe either Slack or email or zoom calls, their ability to do what they do shines a little bit more. And I, mm. I found myself not with, without having to have my immediate cultural biases that were inherently put into my brain, you know, there it's like, I look at people's work product a little bit differently. I'm like, Oh wow. Like that stands out as their body of work than just their body. Oh gosh. I can go on and on about that. I mean, the question is, so we studied, I think largely, uh, the biases that were triggered mainly in the physical workplace. And you think about people's physical appearance, you think, are they tall? Are they short? Are they, you know, are they non-white and tall? You know, are they whatever? Like, how do people dress? And what are the associations that come along with that? How do they wear their, their hair? So in, in the virtual world, it's uh, fascinating to imagine. I think both have happened. You know, some of us are deeply 
we're, we're hiding even more, uh, perhaps, and, and maybe what we're experiencing and challenged by is less visible. And then there's others that have told me uh, that they're really, they're on display and it's been really uncomfortable because in a way we're like in each other's living rooms and seeing each other's lives. And that's socioeconomic background, that's family, that's parenting and homeschooling and working, you know, so we're, we're being seen in this in many ways, kind of a suboptimal reality, which is our lives truly. And that has never really been seen adequately and certainly not resourced and strategized around um, historically. So this year is a real wake up call to say, this is our real lives. Like this is what it, what was really experienced behind the the curtain. And um, I'm, I for one, I'm just really, I know it's been uncomfortable to be this vulnerable, but I'm really grateful because that information has motivated empathy and problem solving in the best organizations, of course, you know, um, some have not responded well, and some have been very rigid as a response to this year. And I think that's the wrong answer, obviously. But, um, you know, uh, and I would also say that some of my friends, um, I have some friends who are gender non-binary and identify with they, them pronouns. My pronouns are she, her, hers, but my non-binary friends, uh, say that they're misgendered much less often when they are, um, you know, neck up on a screen. And, and that's because they're not in the physical workplace walking around and people are, you know, being triggered or confused or saying, you know, something that is insensitive. Uh, so anyway, I, I just loved that kind of silver lining. And so I have sort of an equal number of people who actually feel they're bringing more of their full selves to the workplace in this virtual configuration. Um, and then of course there's the opposite. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this shifts the whole, bring your whole self to work uh, concept. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because you there is a certain professional facade that we would all put on and I think for so for so long mm. um we we were taught, you know, and at least I was, you know, coming up in, in particularly New York City's business culture of you have your professional life and your work life. They would always cross and then you would pretend they didn't. And there was there was always this kind of weird <laughs> like I'm going to set this invisible wall up that doesn't really exist. And I started reading a lot about yes. uh, some of Google's cultures and about mm. how some of the managers became vulnerable. And one of the gentlemen that was leading a team and was diagnosed with cancer and told his whole team and it was like you know crushing for them. But he was able to share with them because he's like, look, I spend 50, 60 hours a week with these people. These these are these are my friends. These are my coworkers. Mm. At the same time, mm. I need to be vulnerable, but. I guess kind of looking at it and what we do a lot in cybersecurity is like kind of root cause analysis. You know, what was the thing that sent, sent us all off? And, and I'm always curious, like, how did we get down this path? And, and, and is it just American business culture too, where, oh, no, no, we have to keep this, this invisible wall up? Mm, how did we get here? Oh, gosh. I mean, the industrial age, you know, I think we're still tethered to being widget makers on, a, on an assembly line. You know, I think I... Uh, my friend Aaron Dignan, who's like a, a work strategist, um, he, he puts up an org chart in his presentations and it's a typical org chart. And he says, guess when this org chart is from? <laughs> and hands go up and people guess, you know, I don't know, 80s, 60s. It's from 1920. And it looks exactly the same as our org charts now. Anyway, so that always sticks with me because I think we are we are still presented with a job to do versus like people first. We're still like, you know, trying to fit ourselves into the sort of unit of measurement or asset, if you will, people as sort of an asset to be extracted from. And I still 
I still feel that it's the workplace fundamentally. They say they're about people, but they don't actually walk it at all. Um, and therefore that leads to that lack of of empathy. It leads to not seeing the full person. It leads to certain people being, you know, successful in certain systems and others kind of spilling out of that system, you know, because they're outsiders. And, and then it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. I think the big, huge thing that's probably going to eclipse my work and your work because of our, I don't know what your generation is. I'm Gen X, you know, and I, I think we only kind of took the ball as far as we could and we, we did a good job, but we just were, you know, we were a smaller generation um, without without kind of the the tailwinds that the younger generations have in terms of size and also voice. And um, having been raised with very different messages about, I think, about kind of valuing all of who they are. I mean, uh, it wasn't, we were the disaffected generation. And so it, it was not at all about valuing <laughs> all of who we are. In fact, our parents are like, get out of here. You're 18. Like, you are not allowed to stay here, you know, and no, I'm not like helping you. You're on your own. You know, it was a cynical generation, very independent, you know, that, that norm that we have is, um, that disaffected and, you know, it's a great generational attribute. Uh, but I think that this next wave has, has, and will certainly bring that, like almost a demand and an expectation for being seen and heard for being able to, uh, finally kind of completely blur those lines, right. Working anywhere, anytime, you know, um, you know, work, self, personal, you know, and, and just how that's going to, how that's going to happen is going to be interesting to see because they're going to hold their employers accountable for walking the talk in a very radically different way. And I think companies are way behind and leaders are way behind. I mean, any leader that's been head in the sand about diversity, equity, and inclusion is going to be and is being met with a generation for whom it is table stakes. So, you know, that's a kind of a wake up. I hope that's a wake up call for people because this is not just like a moral argument. Yeah, know? no. And I, I think there's, there's a fear in a lot of businesses and leaders like, well, you know, if we get too soft, if we get too, you know, malleable to our, our core beliefs that everybody has to go through this gauntlet of pain to get to pleasure, it's like, that's insane. It, it worked maybe in a, a limited capacity, but now we have people that when I started hiring, you know, coming from Gen X too, hiring millennials, and I'd say, you know, well, you know, in, particularly in a consulting realm in New York City and, you know, the expectations being you're, you're billing 1,800 to 2,000 hours a, a year where they're like, no. I'm like, I'm sorry, but they're like, no, we're, I, I need my weekends. My weekends are more important to me. There's no amount of money you can throw at me because, again, it became that value of I value my time and my family and, and work is not my entire life. So you can't you can't buy that. And I'm like, OK, now I have to I have to change things. And I really <laughs> I really had to adopt it to a work from anywhere. And I was in a very kind of a rigid management structures where I'm like, well, let's try some things out and really gave people some freedoms, the ability to, quite frankly, talk back to me uh, as, you know, as a superior <laughs> and challenge me, which was great. It, 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 they became my mentors in a way because they would call me out oh, of my own BS. But I saw their productivity go up. I saw oh, my gross excellent. profit better. I saw our total revenues wow. be better when God forbid, you know, I had happy employees that felt they were part of something and part of a mission. God forbid. And, 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 and they, yeah. And they felt valued. I gave them that they felt valued in their contributions and they worked harder for me. I, I, I joked, I still talk to a lot of this team, you know, we consider ourselves family. I said, you know, I would mess with them on like Tuesdays. Like, hey, come on guys, let's knock off and go to happy hour. And I'm like, no, Doug, I got work to do. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, 
I'm the boss. I Amazing. can't even like tell them. They're like, I, I take pride <laughs> in what I do, so I'm going to work harder. Oh my gosh, that is well credit to you. And what I hear in that is you is really you shining through, which is you know you're much more open and 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 striving to grow all the time and and be a, really that servant leader, right? That leader who really works for your team, you know, and um, shapes around them, which is I I think the best kind of leadership, um, you know. But that rigid hierarchy has been so harmful for so many of us that kind of don't, our lives don't fit into the, the, the norm. And, and for whom I like to say the workforce just wasn't built by and for so many of us. And so we've just been laboring in the system that we don't, we don't understand that doesn't fit um, where we're not on the inside. Uh, we don't understand the career decisions we, we should be making, right? There's nobody over our shoulder saying like, Hey, you want, you might want to go for this position or this stretch assignment, or you need to do this so that you can do that someday. Or I see you doing this someday and really dreaming big, like bigger for us than we dream for ourselves. Um, you know, those kinds of leaders are, are sadly like in short apply, but that's, that's what we need particularly targeted at talent that is at risk, like at risk talent. We think about Doug, you're probably following the number of women that are leaving the workforce this year. I mean, it's the numbers are staggering because the workplace has not been conducive to all of our lives for forever, like since the, the dawn of this age, but uh, we have not addressed it. And now, you know, like we have the consequences this year where progress on you know, attracting and retaining women into the workplace and growing and advancing them as the progress is being rolled out, you know, six to eight, rolled back like six to eight years uh, in 2020. So it's, it's devastating, but it's not surprising to me because we have not done, we have not changed the things that we needed to change. Even, even though those people who, like me have been, you know, raising the flag a million times and trying to get the attention of business leadership diversity, equity, inclusion concerns have been viewed as a nice to have forever. You know this. Um, so it's been a real, it's been discouraging. I mean, those of us who do this work, you have to be fueled by this internal passion because all you meet with is resistance and denial and apathy and silence and give me more of the business case. <laughs> I want well, it, more business some, case. <laughs> the, just sometimes the the cynicism too. It's, you know, oh, yes. and particularly again for being who I am is like, oh, you're just being, uh, you know, you're just virtue signaling, Doug. I'm like, no, actually <laughs> I care about these issues. And I, I like, so it kind of made me feel bad for stepping up when, when people would accuse me of that. Yeah, Doug, I know you're in a tough position and I actually study I study, I mean, if I can just put a fine point on it, um, white men like leading on this and, and all the nuances of it and all the criticism, I'm sure you will get like, oh, you're just, you're pandering or you don't yeah. really mean it or you come across as inauthentic or, you know, even just your own demons about like, how, how can I be authentic about this when I have so many privileges? How can I help? And without, you know, intruding or saying the wrong thing or, you know, all the things that we get scared about. And I just, I cannot overstate how important it is though, all that being said, to nevertheless be brave and courageous and nevertheless like step in, in spite of all those barriers, both self-imposed and also the, the things that would make us fearful from the outside, all the doubt, um, all the... I mean, in a way, it's it's also kind of there's a threat there because you're breaking you're breaking with some norms that I think are very carefully, closely protected. Like you either fall in line with how things have been done, or you become 
kind of an agitator for change. And there are risks to doing that. So I'm kind of curious about like consequences to you and how, you know, how have you had any and, 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 and how has it felt to be kind of out on the limb and being a voice for something when, when almost nobody that looks like you is also being a voice in the way that you are. Yeah, it's it's without a doubt been a challenge where I've seen other managers in other divisions of groups that I've been in um, question my motives or why am I doing this or why am I not being a team player or, mm. or why am I promoting, you know, junior staff to speak out um, for themselves huh. and kind of have their own voice. And it's, yeah, it's never <laughs> been, you know, met well. And, you know, I've always been accused of valuing my staff more than the company. I'm like, well, the company's mm. not going to exist, particularly in consulting. Uh, we need them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we New don't. Slash. <laughs> yeah. And it's like this idea of like, you know, get them into the mold. I'm like, the mold's broken and it's not working and they're yeah. unhappy and we're, you know, I, I have the numbers to back up and that's so why I feel like it may, it might just crazy because if I look at the financial numbers, if I do it kind of AB comparison, the people that are happier work less, make more money themselves. They make more money for the organization. Mm. We have better profits mm. because we're not having to redo work. We're not having to rewrite reports, write off time because somebody just did sloppy work because they were unhappy. Mm. And I was like, Hey, if mm. you need a day, go just get out of the office, go relax, like reset. I don't want you at 60%. I want you at hundred percent. Get there. Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. and so it's, it's been very, an unwelcome way. And so I'm always trying to find, you know, is it, is it just me? Is there, is there more data and facts around this story to say to the business people, you know, in, in this rest of the C-suite? Well, look, I mean, here are the, here are the facts that support my view. I don't know if they're out there or even where to look. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are there is a lot of research and data if if that's what people want like the women in the workplace study um by McKinsey which is written with lean in is every 2 years and it's just an excellent source of data and it's um gosh if you can read that and think that you don't need to change your own leadership <laughs> um and that you don't need to deal with people differently because so much is getting in in the way of our talent thriving um, you know, I can scarcely understand like why that wouldn't be important. And and we're always hunting for clues. So I don't know why we should doubt that data point, you know, that we should actually like believe it the first time and say, you know, I believe this to be true. And if I, if I take this on board, then am I reinforcing some of these headwinds? Um, am I interrupting processes in the organization or perpetuating you know, harmful processes, processes that are, you know, continuing to keep gaps in place, continuing to reinforce certain things. Am I not using my voice at all to challenge things when I'm the only one in the room and there's no diversity in the room and, and therefore like things don't get spoken or named? Uh, often, you know, we need people like you, if you're the, if you are in the room of all men say, and you notice that, you know, we're reviewing talent and the slate has very little diversity on it or no diversity. Like, do you, do you know how to say something? Do you notice it? Do you say something? Do you have the courage to challenge your peers to say, Hey, we need to go back to the drawing board. So it is, um, it's, it's it, people, People may push back on you and say, like, you're just causing trouble. And why do you have to be this way? And why did you have to bring that up? And whose side are you on? <laughs> um, which are all very interesting questions. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think leaders should be free thinkers in terms of improving the organization they're in. And if we don't want our leaders to be thinking about every single moment of every day, how can we not just get more out of our people? But how can we be a place that people thrive? To me, thriving means we have joy. 
in what we do. It means that I'm comfortable because I feel seen and heard. And when I'm comfortable, I feel that belonging. And when I belong, I'm able to create and I'm able to innovate, right? And I, I trust my colleagues, right? Which we know is the engine of performance. Of course, you know that. Um, so I, I also think like an over-reliance on the business case without backing up and saying, well, but what, how do we be people, we want people to feel here so that they can perform and what's getting in the way of performance. And, and then let's address that. You know, it's not about whether you agree or disagree with it. I, I feel like the data is all around us. It's the question to me is where do we start? And I love that question because then we can go into, okay, so let's, let's, let's try to isolate where the challenges are. Let's go through and do an audit. Let's do focus groups. Like let's collect confidential information so that we can learn about who's having a different experience in our workplace. And, and then we can move to solutioning and then we can hold ourselves accountable for those solutions. And if they're not the right solutions, we go back to the drawing board. We try again, right? It's iterative. Um, and, but we work the plan. Um, so I don't know, it's, it's when all these emotions get involved in like agreeing or disagreeing with whether this matters, I think, I think that sort of confuses me, but that is where humans get stuck. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is that, that prefrontal lobe of what should I be doing this? And it's like, well, look, if the data, the data is there to do it. But then what I find is like it, a lot of it comes down to intent. And I've had some other folks on the show talking mm. about, you know, how to change it because it's like, it's one thing to put it out there and say it, but to really do it with intent, um, is an interesting thing. And, and again, my own research and certainly this this past year with everything with uh, Black Lives Matter and really kind of leaning into that and, and covering that and reading books like, um, you know, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and really seeing mm -hmm. there, there are those you know, almost systems in place that kind of keep voices down. And one of the things I've always heard too, particularly about you know, women in the workplace is like, well, you know, they don't advocate for themselves enough and this mm -hmm. is why there's a pay gap. And that, that might have part of it, but I also feel mm -hmm. like, on the other hand, well, why don't they feel comfortable? You know, is, is it a system, a, a systemic problem where people don't feel comfortable? I guess, like, how do we, where are some of these underlying, like, hurdles within our, our structures that kind of keep some of this progress from happening? I know. I mean, it's so strange that people would say, well, they don't advocate for themselves. To me, that's like a surface, like one layer deep way of looking at a problem. But you just asked the best question, which is, well, hold on. Why don't they feel comfortable advocating for themselves? And there's so much to unpack in that. You know, as a, as a girl, now a woman, you know, how was I socialized? How did I use my voice? How did I understand how to negotiate? Who did I watch negotiate as a mentor so that I could learn? Who coached me? who, you know, carried me into this workplace and kind of told me the unwritten rules, the unofficial things that nobody tells you. Um, how do I get over being, you know, the, the fact that as research shows us that being nice, like being nice is also on my to-do list. So at the same time as I advocate for myself, I can't play hardball because I always have to be likable, you know, and, and, you know, oh, by the way, like there's not a lot of women above me you know, where, whose paths I can follow and who I can understand their career trajectory and the moves that they made strategically so that I could understand what the moves might look like for me. Um, it's, it's in, in not even knowing you can negotiate for something is, I mean, when you think about what we just don't know, because we haven't been raised in a system where this was something we, we were exposed to. I don't, so we're, it's not about capability. It's literally, uh, literally not knowing what you don't know. I mean, you walk into an interview, somebody asks you, uh, how much did you make? What's your salary history? Which by the way, now we're looking at critically 
to say, wait a second, when we ask our candidates their salary history, that is like the worst question you can ask because the women coming in and other, by the way, um, non-white, non-male talent is coming in and reporting a number that is too low because of the pay gap. Yeah. So literally- Just on that point, cybersecurity, you know, women historically are 13% um, lower paid than their male counterparts, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, a, a woman of color is another thirteen percent lower than yes. that. <laughs> yes, yes. So, and if you don't know what, and listeners, please know the pay gap statistics. Like, please know them for your industry. Know them in general. Understand that white women have a different gap than women of color. Um, that you know, immigrant women. I mean, it goes sort of goes down from there. So. Uh, so it's called like, I think it's called anchoring bias or something. So if I come in and say I made 70,000, then my interviewer is like, oh, great. We can, we can get away with paying her 72, right? (laughs) (laughs) That is not the right way. So the most progressive things like a couple States, I think I hope more than just a couple, uh, the States have, um, have legislated that it's illegal to ask for salary history. And that is precisely to address this exact issue of it's not the candidate's fault if they don't negotiate well. It's just, it's a ridiculous system. <laughs> like it should, has nothing, negotiating well has nothing to do with your ability to do a job well. And it carries with it so much baggage that has to do with our identities and um, and what we weren't exposed to or practiced in or told to do or taught to do. Um, there's just, there's just so much. So um I'll, the other thing while we're on that topic is, um, you know, women feeling like we have to have 150% of the qualifications for something in order to go out for an opportunity. And, you know, men, you're doing the opposite to say like, oh, you know, sure, I can do that. Like, I've never done it before, but like, give me a shot. And like other men giving that man a shot. And so those of us who are on the on the first scenario I described, like are very acutely aware that we are sort of we should be somehow grateful to be at the table. And so that drives a very different, it drives a scarcity mentality also, which I think is really pernicious for morale and relationships. Like if I feel I'm the only one, I'm like hanging on by my fingernails and I'm having to work double time to belong. Um, And I'm facing a lot of insensitive comments and microaggressions and sort of unchecked bias. And, you know, I'm not in a world that's familiar to me that's just added burden for my performance. And no, and I don't think a lot of people shine in those circumstances. I mean, who would, you know? So I think that's what we need to take apart, you know, and figure out like there really is a burden carried by those of us who are underrepresented in the extreme. Um, we constantly have to think about what am I, what part of me are people going to see and they trigger their bias? What part of me can I hide and not talk about? Um, sort of it's this constant bargaining with our our authenticity. And that has, I think, a diminishing impact on our sense of ourselves and our confidence. So we don't walk into that interview feeling like we should, right? In, yeah. in, let alone negotiate. Yeah, I, I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of these issues hit close to home. And I, I think I've been very fortunate to have very strong uh, female role models in my life. My, my mother being, um, you know, a six foot, to south side of Chicago, Pollock, you know, was not going to wow. take any crap from anybody. <laughs> but also, like, she, you know, she grew up in the '60s awesome. with with a, a diverse group in Chicago with the political and news uh, groups. Wow. Before she moved to New York, so she just seen, you know, 
seen some crazy mm. stuff of, of mm. that whole turmoil when she came to New York, met my father, they started a business and they, with intent, had made her uh, the president because my father was also very uh, feminist in his own way, you know, wanted that to be a kind of a, a, a you know, a thing because he has, you know, I have three half sisters from his, his, his prior marriage and they're all rock stars in their own field. So I, I kind of grew up with this very strong sense of women leadership. Um, and so, yeah, I, to them, they were in, in large ways role models to me. So I saw how to, basically do business because of them, how to negotiate. My sister is Mm -hmm. God, probably one of the best. Um, And so I was very fortunate in that sense to have women role models, Mm -hmm. but I I feel like not everybody has access to that. And that kind of goes to the overall mentoring thing. And, you know, are, how, how can we make mentorship programs, you know, whether it be in the workplace or outside of the workplace, more beneficial, more effective maybe to people that are feeling like, Hey, you know, I need to see other people excel that don't look like me, or maybe they do like, like me and they'll teach me the path. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that question. So I'd recommend, first of all, inventorying your mentoring activities, whether you're mentee or mentor, which you should, by the way, should be both (laughs) no matter where you are in your career. Um, but I would, I always encourage leaders who are just kind of emerging into this conversation to um, assess the identities of all their mentees. So who do you make time for? Do you make time for the squeaky wheel, for example? Like who's going to typically be the squeaky wheel? Who's the one that's going to probably feel comfortable enough to come into your office and grab some time on your calendar? You know, it's usually somebody that looks like you. And we tend to, I, I don't think we are proactive and intentional enough. Um, we sort of you know, passively, I think, say yes to mentoring. But if we don't direct our mentoring to the composition of our mentees, and this goes both ways, by the way, um, if we don't direct it to be largely different than us in terms of identity, it will tend to look like us, I think. Uh, and so, and conversely, if you are, say, a young woman of color in an organization, um, you know, it, it's there may not be enough mentors that are women of color that are available to you. And I would say it's incredibly important to have uh, white male mentors if those do- that, that identity dominates the top of your company. Um, and so I, I always want to say that too, because uh, if there's a dearth of an identity that you would relate to, it doesn't mean that you know, you're not, you, you can't find effective relationships. But um, so diversify your mentor circles, make sure they are largely different, identify differently than you. Um, and if not, I would make some changes and, and just be, you know, you have choice in the matter. You can curate this. This is not something you have to just accept unless you're in a mentoring program where you're being assigned people. And then I would say request that you are assigned people of different backgrounds. That's imperative, imperative. I would also say I encourage reverse mentoring. I think you mentioned this earlier without kind of calling it that, but um, Bank of New York Mellon, I wrote a whole paper on reversing the generation equation. And it's all about these mentoring pairs where the millennial talent was the mentor and the executive was the mentee. And so I would also think very outside the box about, you know, needing the mutuality of mentoring. And the potential to be mentored across difference is super transformational too. And then uh, I would also add that mentoring is not the same as sponsoring. So mentoring is the is the you know coaching, guiding, uh, you know the things we typically think about like career advice and whatever. I, uh, 
sponsorship though, is joining your capital with someone. And I mean, social capital, professional capital, reputational capital, uh, vouching for somebody, championing someone when they're not in the room. Uh, and sponsors are way rarer than mentors because it traditionally it's been left up to chemistry. Like, oh, um, you can't like put me on a spreadsheet and assign me to be somebody's sponsor because I have to really believe in their work because I'm going to like literally vouch for them. I'm going to join my reputation to theirs. But I I disagree with with needing to wait for chemistry. And I also think it's dangerous because it's it's so it's rare. Um, and in the physical world, it was rare enough. I mean, imagine in the virtual world where I think we get in a way less exposure for our good good works and you know being caught in you know doing something amazing um, and being witnessed and, and someone approaching us and saying, hey, you know, would you like to have coffee and turning into your mentor? I mean, there's fewer and fewer opportunities in this virtual world. So we have to be extra proactive. But I would say, so sponsoring is the really effectively that power sharing piece that is the concrete enabler of, of acceleration. It's 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 the thing that has been shown to make the biggest difference for underrepresented and marginalized talent is sponsorship. So if you're listening to this and you and you aren't familiar, you can look up the concept of sponsoring and mentoring and educate yourself about the differences. And then you can um, think about, do I have sponsors? I wonder, like, is somebody, does somebody have my back that I don't know about? Which is often what happens actually. Uh, sometimes you know your sponsor and what they're, how they're enabling you behind the scenes. Um, but either way, know that this is something that is critical, especially like the more senior you get, where it becomes all about who vouches for you, who has your back, the unwritten rules, the relationships we have with each other. All of that becomes incredibly important. And that's, I think, where we lose a lot of talent from you know the, the trajectory that they should be on because that talent, there is no one kind of shepherding them through, removing obstacles, addressing um, assumptions about them and their capabilities and potential. And without somebody looking out for you, you're not going to know what you don't know. And you are a very easy candidate to leave or get poached or just burn out. So really, I think this is an incredibly important uh, concept along these lines. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole mentor-mentee relationship, I, I've always kind of struggled with having come up in entrepreneurship and then finding people that were informal mentor, mentors in business that gave me shots, so to speak. And I felt like they, they did that, they had that advocacy. They gave me shots with big clients, um, that, you know, to today I still <laughs> feel very grateful mm -hmm. for. Um, and mm -hmm. then as I moved into organizations where I was leadership and management finding, I did not have peers or very few, um, or one case where I had somebody that I'd, I'd worked with very closely, considered a mentor, and he was unceremoniously, you know, kind of fired in front of me uh, because for oh. just for financial reasons. And it was with with the then the the post to that of the organization. Well, we didn't want to lose you too. We were worried that because you guys were so close that you would leave. So we didn't tell you in advance. I'm like, this is a hell of a way to start the day, guys. Thanks a lot. And it was traumatizing. And I, I kind of was traumatizing. Like, I went home shaking. Like I was like, what do I do? And they're like, kind of gave me a battlefield promotion and they're like well you know we'll give you a raise and obviously a title and all if you don't want it you can leave i was like this is a real sophie's choice i really appreciate oh, this and um and, and, <laughs> you know and that loss of that mentorship and guidance was, was then it found me having to kind of go in and, and, and look for whether it was 
books, mm-hmm. blogs, whatever it was, podcasts, and try to find mm-hmm. that voice. But really then looking down and say, well, wait a minute, why does it have to be somebody in a superior role? Why does it have to be a manager? Why, you know, mm-hmm. it could be just somebody that's honest with me. That's going to, again, kind of call me out on my own BS and say, look, you're, <laughs> you're, you're too close to the situation or think about things differently. And that I found incredibly valuable for people that I had hired that I created that open door where they became those mentors, where they would be like, look, I think we need to come at this a different way. I know you might not agree, but this is how I feel. And I'd be like, you know what? That's, that's actually a good idea. Let's come to a consensus maybe. And, and things got done faster, but it was incredibly valuable for me to be open to hearing people again, because a gentleman who was my mentor and, <laughs> and I followed, he and I could be twins. I mean, it really was that, that looking like mm. sounding like feeling and just was <laughs> probably too close. So I actually found that in the long run to be uh, beneficial to then open up myself to being mentored by a lot of different people from different, different ways that I guess I would have never, I never would have looked at it that way. Yeah. And the more people that have your back and the more kind of dispersed they are or distributed they are, the the more coverage you have exactly. <laughs> in terms of, I mean, why wouldn't you want that? I mean, you need, you need mentors both within your line of business and also in adjacent or parallel ones and also outside, completely outside of your industry. You know, I think you should always be seeding the ground for these relationships before you need them, right? Before you're in crisis. Yeah. So it's like, you should be pouring into them, investing in them, you know, keeping them warm, if you will. Um, and I know, I mean, I have to take my own medicine cause I'm not great at this, but it's <laughs> those who, what do they say? Can't do, teach, can't do, teach. <laughs> yeah, we, my, my parents always call us communication consultants as a family. We suck at communicating. So we will say you know, everybody, but the shoemakers kids, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate your story though. And, um, I just love you started throwing yourself at the mercy of, of, um, of younger mentors, um, I think is, is a really interesting strategy. I mean, because we are nothing without quote unquote followership. And I don't mean that in a seniority kind of way, but look, we're all following each other. I mean, I follow people more senior than me. If I'm in a follower role that day, like I'm supporting you. And so, yeah, I think that learning, having the humility to flex and, and view organizations more and more as flat. I mean, I wish they were more flat. It's what we strive for at my company. But um, it just, to me, it's not about the org chart. It's just about the role you happen to be playing in any given constellation of people. Um, and we can learn so much from the younger generation about what's broken in this workplace. And, um, you know, I love that you're right in the middle of all of it. <laughs> Trying to figure it out. I can visualize it. (laughs) Well, part of it too is I think there's been more, you know, at least signaling that things are okay in a certain way to to talk about these things because we've seen more organizations have different groups uh, around different uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, You know, I'm I'm very fortunate now in an organization, Splunk, that has – uh, a neurodiversity group that I'm active with, and we just did a video uh, about it, talking about issues and kind of removing some of that stigma. We have LBGTQ, we have Black, we have women, and we have in they these different you know groups, um, which I think is great. My only concern is not that I think my organization, but when I see this happening, is you know it not being lip service and being with intent mm-hmm. and being um, accountable. How do you? help organizations make these groups really effective and not just, you know, Hey, we're just going to put it up on the website because it looks good. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, those, well, it starts with, I think the way the groups are chartered, um, they are, they're little like business entities unto themselves, right? They need a, a proper strategy, which is part of the consulting work we do actually is help to set up these groups for, for success. So from a structural 
perspective, um, they need to have goals and, and measurements and, you know, a clear understanding of, you know, vision, mission, and what does success look like and, um, as, you know, stakeholder engagement strategy. And they need to be driving in an ideal world, they need to be driving three pillars, workforce, workplace, and marketplace. So they aren't just um, happy hours, like we used to say in LGBTQ circles, like we were known for great parties, <laughs> but it needs to really drive the business. And so in the case of LGBTQ, it's how are we attracting talent from that community? How are we retaining talent and pipelining that talent? How are we creating an inclusive workplace that feels welcoming to LGBTQ identities? Um, and then how are we how are we approaching the market of consumers that identify um, either as part of this community or with the values that this community also values, right? Which is which is a much broader group of people. Um, anyway, so those are the pillars of strategy for these diversity networks. And so, you know, most successful groups have this in place and are driving their objectives. And they have an executive sponsor, by the way, who is accountable to ensure they are you know, bringing their value to the organization and also getting the value and being recognized for everything they're bringing to the company. Because often it's, you know, we, we roll our eyes and say it's unpaid labor. Really, it's, it's, it's intel about the company that these communities are giving firsthand. Like, here's what it's like to be me at this organization. Here's what it feels like to be me. Um, here's how safe I feel or I don't feel. Here's how I feel. Um, our language, our marketing, our product development, our processes is um, inclusive of people like me or not. And that information, again, back to our earlier conversation, is critical. This is lifeblood stuff. Um, this is not nice to have. This is not, oh, give the employees some, you know, budget and let them go have some fun. Like, it's not... It does it, it. It might have started that way in these groups. You know, the history of it is important to know. These groups started as as communities, right? They also started as um, more philanthropic efforts, meaning like doing community service and uh, et cetera. And that's still a pillar that a lot of them prioritize, like in in many advanced ways, actually. But more and more these days, it's driving the professional development, um, educating the organization about its biases when it comes to different identities. Uh, uh, being a community that, uh, that sustains diverse talent and hopefully keeps that talent in the organization because they enjoy, like you enjoy finding your people. That's just kind of human. And especially you need your people, whoever your people are, are in a workplace, not built by and for you and where you don't really see yourself reflected um, in particularly in senior leadership. So you know, these are, these are need to have organizations and, and, and mechanisms within companies. Um, and so the work that I try to get companies to do is to make sure they're maximizing these networks for everything that they can give and that they're willing to give and that they're passionate about giving, which by the way, they're doing this like on the side of their desk for free because they want to create a better workplace for themselves and also for, you know, leave a legacy of a better workplace so that, you know, people don't have to go through what they went through. I mean, it's just quite, it's, it's quite amazing when you think about the generosity of that, um, the dedication, the investment of time, um, the, the, I think the, the give back of that is enormous. Um, and all, my wish is, is that they were recognized and supported and championed and that, that, that actually the people in those networks are the future talent, um, future leaders of an organization. And they are the talent that often gets ignored. 
or not thought of or not mentored and sponsored, right? Um, they are by identity kind of nature outside of the systems of power. And so the these groups can actually reintroduce this talent pipeline into the power structure. Um, and that is like a sorely, sorely needed um, additional benefit to them. Yeah. I find it interesting too, you know, going back to when we're talking about the overall business values, it, it to me, it just seems like a no brainer, right? I mean, we, we know how hard it is and again, again, particularly in my industry with cybersecurity to get and retain talent. Uh, the cost mm -hmm. of acquiring talents high, uh, the churn and turnover is high, and, and there's an, um, you know studies going back decades showing that you know losing talent within the first 18 months is is yes. pretty devastating. So why would you not want to do this? And then if you look at it too from the perspective of you know again like why would you want to exclude any buyer? I, I want everybody to be a buyer of my services or whatever it is. Yeah. And if I, if I'm, you know, turning people off, that just seems very anti-capitalistic. This idea of like, well, you know, it's, it's, everything has to be a zero sum game. You know, somebody has to lose for me to win. I'm like, well, why, you know, what if we both win and how's that not more inclusive and capitalistic? We could do both. It's not a crazy <laughs> concept, like get over yourself. <laughs> and it's Love very, that. I think it's very difficult for people to see that they feel like they're by, by being inclusive or being weak, they're somehow losing something. And I, I, oh, I think that's the, the hardest the thing to get through people's heads. Like you're not losing anything here. Oh my gosh. I wish I could clone you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I spent all my time on that conversation. I'm like, this is not a zero sum game. There's enough to go around, you know, just because you share power, some of the power you have with somebody doesn't mean there's less for you. Like it just doesn't work that way. I mean, it's just, a, it, it's, it, I don't know, I guess that is illogical to some people and, um, but it is, it's the scarcity mentality that, that fuels uh, capitalism, but I agree with you. And I think you just brought up the, the, um, I don't know if you brought this up, but it made me think about the clients and the customers want to see diversity on our teams. Meaning if I'm a service provider, if I'm a consultancy, like whoever I am, uh, or it's an interview process, you know, who is represented on both sides of that really it matters and it's noticed. And I know I wish I could quantify how many RFPs or renewals with, you know, relationships between strategic partners uh, don't go through year over year because, one uh, one side of the equation is saying we want to see your diversity plan like we uh, you know i'm disney and i'm looking at law firms you know and i want to know that our service providers and our firm partners are literally doing all the work they need to do to make sure that they reflect us and our constituencies our customers right at disney which obviously looks like the world right so it's um I, I think we're we're in a lot of risk of of when we do mess this up and we don't stay dedicated to it and we don't have a story to tell, even if it's an imperfect story. It doesn't need to be like we're done and we accomplished this and we have a perfect, you know, perfect image to show. It's it's not even that. It's it's being transparent about the work you're doing, the goals that you have for you know representation, the goals for engagement, um, promotion. Um, you know, it's being able to speak about that in an authentic and informed way, and not in kind of a forced way. Um, and it's it's really the work matters, and where you are in the progress matters. But it doesn't need to be a done deal. And I, I think uh, I just feel like you know companies you know, we need to not just like grab the token woman and put her on the sales team meeting, 
but send in like five white guys, you know, like you, it's just not going to, it's not going to work. It's not working. Even if you think it is working right now, it won't be sustainable because who's sitting across from that table from us is going to look vastly different as we become a minority majority nation. And the buying power shifts so much to uh, women and people of color are the fastest growing like sources of wealth and spending. And LGBTQ people are, I think, a, a trillion dollars in buying power, I think. So, you know, how do you show up to a meeting of any kind where somebody's representing their customers and look and be and look, you know, homogeneous? Like that's that's not a good choice. So, and I've, yeah. I've had that. I, I had a situation where I was trying to really, I had already won the contract, this very big logo pharma company, and it was a small consultancy. And this was kind of a make it or break it account. And I'd, I'd won mm. the work and went over, did my sales pitch solo. But then I said, okay, when we're going to do the extended meeting with their team and our team, I brought in, you know, my diversity team is to the extent that it was with, with some questions of like, well, I don't understand why she's going. If she's not in a management position, I was like, just shut up and listen to me. <laughs> and sure <laughs> enough, we get into the meeting and, and this person now who I've championed and she's now you know a VP level by 30 and I'm very proud of her and all. Wow. But I saw that in her and I wanted her at this meeting. And, you know, the, the buyer was a woman of color who said specifically to him, and I'm glad you, Doug, I'm glad you brought a female mm. along because now I see that it's not just basically all white males. And oh, I'm like, and I kind of had that victory moment. I'm saying, like, I told you so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it really helped. And, and be proud of that. <laughs> yeah, and, it, you know, it solidified the, the business arrangement. Um, and then she became, you know, uh, the, my, my, uh, the person reporting me then became the lead on that account. And, you know, mm. for me, as I was a manager, I knew that account was taken care of. I didn't have to babysit it. Mm. It was done. So again, it was one of those things where it was a win across the boards and nobody lost. Mm. <laughs> oh my gosh. What a story. It's so true. And that repeats itself everywhere. And if you, if you think you haven't lost business because of this, like, you know, who knows if the client were really being honest, you know, I just don't think it's reported. Um, but, and, but, you know, and if it's icing on the cake, okay, but it's still an element to be considered. And I only predict that it's going to become a bigger and bigger part of the pie in terms of, uh, why decisions are made to stay with someone or work with somebody or terminate a contract. Um, you know, we'll get calls, you know, uh, I won't name like a retailer who partners with this massive construction company who's family owned and a hundred years old. And so the, the, the retailer calls us and says, we need you to talk to our construction partner because we're about to it's like multi-gazillion dollar contract because they just don't get it. Um, you know, and I look at their masthead online and I see, oh my gosh, like pay, I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling until I saw a woman <laughs> and anybody of color. And I thought, oh my goodness, like they are really in trouble. And I don't even know if they realize they're in trouble until this retail client told them, say like, we cannot work with you anymore, given that you don't seem to be on any kind of journey. I mean, and the seem to be is important because it could be the optics, right? I get it. And there could be tons of work going on inside. So I think it's important to kind of, you know, assess all of that. But, you know, likely not. <laughs> likely there's not a lot of work going on in there. So, uh, yeah. So we love, we do love clients like that though, because um, they're really at their beginning of their journey. And it's, it's, it's fun and gratifying for us to be able to kind of set things up right from the beginning so that they, the compass is pointed in the right direction that they don't kind of make the common missteps with DEI strategies, uh, and so it's it's great too to kind of encounter uh, 
I mean, no, no slate, no slate is blank and, and there's definitely, you know, always like a backstory, always a lot of feelings about it, you know, sometimes a lot of resistance to it, but the eager, the client that's hungry, either because they've been called out in social media or they've been called out by um, one of their partners or their key customers is very motivated. And, um, that's something I really, I like working with that because it, we can go fast and we can be kind of the expert in the in the equation and and really guide. And there's an eagerness and a hunger for what we can bring. Um, so it's really um, I know some some consultancies don't some consultancies would consider that kind of scenario a lost cause, I guess, which is why I'm also sharing this. And I think that's really interesting. I I, I would hate to write off anyone as a lost cause. I I, you know, look, the worst business this year can in five years become an incredible champion and do a ton of work and make like a quantum leap ahead. So, you know, I never, ever like to dismiss anything from being possible and you have to, no, you have to be an optimist to do this work. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, you know, and I think, you know, inherently people do want to change. I don't, I I do want to believe in the good of people that they're not inherently hateful. They just, maybe they've just been brought up in ways of, they mm-hmm. just don't see see things, and so if you, exactly. you educate them, they're they're willing to change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Between you, if we can't figure out how to do it, I'm so not sure cool. anybody can. <laughs> well, Jennifer, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. I can, I can talk about this all day, but oh uh, yeah, okay, I love it. But where where can people find you online? Thank you so much. Uh, so I have two books. Um, both you can look up on Amazon and other places you buy your books. The first one's called Inclusion from 2017. Second one is How to Be an Inclusive Leader from 2019. Uh, let's see. I have a podcast called The Will to Change. If you, uh, we, we go deep on lots of diversity dimensions, a lot more about what I was talking about today. And then on social media, I am at Jennifer Brown on Twitter, at Jennifer Brown Speaks on Instagram. And if you have a consulting need, uh, please look us up on jenniferbrownconsulting.com and meet our amazing team and get the expert help you need. <laughs> Don't try this at home. Um, <laughs> so definitely partner with, a, whether it's us or somebody else, get a good partner in place for your journey. Uh, and I think that's all the goodies. Well, I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And again, I greatly appreciate First of all, your time and effort on these subjects. I think they're incredibly important in, in taking the time to speak with my listeners about it today. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.